Hey, thanks for taking a few minutes today to tune in. We pray that no matter where you're listening from, these messages are engaging, encouraging, and relevant to where you are on your life's journey. Um, but this, this question, um, I, I want to believe, um, but doesn't science disprove God? And uh, maybe other ways put it, like, it would be really nice if I could just believe, but it's really hard to believe in something that doesn't exist. Uh, someone we don't need. Uh, someone said that uh, Darwin put God out of a job. Um, we didn't need a creator anymore. And uh, I, I thought maybe I'd give you an idea of, you know, some of the popular beliefs that people have about God. So I, I brought my uh, lab coat with me. I'm, I'm not a real doctor. Uh, my wife calls me a paper doctor. Um, and so... Uh, um, my doctorate is, is more in theology, not in science. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you, you think about just how intimidated you feel when someone, you know, puts on their, their white coat and, and says some of the things that we, we hear in culture. Because culture, popular beliefs about God in culture uh, kind of give us the idea that they're impossible. If you ever seen the Big Bang Theory, you know, uh, Sheldon's mother, you know, well, is a believer and believes in Christ. And, you know, he would say to her, you know, you're just a redneck hick. Uh, you're probably a climate denier. And uh, you, um, uh, you know, believe in these antiquated kind of views that went out uh, with, um, you know, the uh, dinosaurs. And so uh, we get that kind of a feeling. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the uh, Nacho Libre. It is the most quotable movie of all times. Uh, but there's this guy, and he says, I only believe in science. Uh, and so, you know, you find people like that. They only believe in science. Um, Richard Dawkins has written a book. It's called The God Delusion. And in the God delusion, he says that the God of the Old Testament is the most uh, unpalatable uh, character in all of fiction. He calls him pestilential, infanticidal. He calls him genocidal. He calls him a bigot, uh, just you know, homophobe. Uh, he, he calls God the most uh, blasphemous things around. Uh, Richard Dawkins, I saw him on George Strombolopoulos, if I'm saying that right. And uh, on Strombo, uh, Richard Dawkins says that, um, you know, if you want to believe in God, you know, that's fine if it works for you. But I like to believe in truth. Just lets it hang there. I like to believe in truth. And you see, there's so much good evidence today. And he says it with a British accent. Doesn't, don't people sound like so much more authoritative when they speak in a British accent? And, and he says there's so much good evidence today to point to the uh, evolutionary theory. You see that... that there's evidence in the nature. And isn't nature and the universe so much more uplifting, so much more edifying than anything that you'd find in backward religion? Religion of any sort, any sort of religion is for idiots, really. 
And you say that on TV, and it's like, I'm getting angry here. You know, and, but those are some of the things that thinking people, people you go to university with, people you work with, often think. And it's like, if you believe this stuff, you know, it's kind of like, I've got some land down in Florida that you and you might really be interested in. So, so what do we do with that? What is the relationship with God and science? I, I know there's many of you here, you have uh, a Bachelor of Science. Uh, some of you have advanced degrees. Somewhere along the way, you've made peace with science. You've come to a point in your life where you find that the two are compatible. And you know what? That is right, because that's the position of Scripture. That's what the Bible teaches. If you look at God and science, think about this. Early, early, in the very first chapter of the Bible, the chapters of the Bible, we hear that God brought Adam. He brought Adam... And you can see that on the next slide. That Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. Already he was involved with zoology. So science or scientific investigation and the Bible have always been part of the the Judeo-Christian ethic. In fact, the first scientists got that idea, and, and that's why they, they proposed the scientists. We hear about King Solomon in the Bible, but one of the things that we see about him was that he was a botanist, a biologist, and he believed in zoology. And we see in First Kings, it says, um, Solomon, uh, he spoke about plant life from the cedars of Lebanon, so the huge vegetation to the hyssop that grows out of the walls he also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish and we see you know some of the major phyla in in the uh, zoological kingdom being mentioned there in that in that uh, chapter so this idea of exploring god's creation is something god wants he wants us to be involved in discovery. We're here at Discovery Church. We, we look at the stars, and for the believer, what we see is the handiwork of God. And we look up and say, isn't it amazing the design, the intellectual design that we see in the universe? For the evolutionists, they look up into the stars, someone like Carl Sagan, who had the whole Cosmos series, he looks into the stars and he says, isn't it amazing that random events have brought me to this place? Random events have brought me here. Well, Christianity actually, over the ages, encouraged science and If you read history correctly, you'll see that some of the greatest scientists who ever lived were all theists. They believed in a personal God. Just even look at the list. Galileo. Now, with what we have is kind of a a rewriting of history. Um, In philosophy, they call it the positive 
positivist view. And that is the idea that science was getting better and better and it was always being attacked by the church. We look at people like Galileo, Copernicus, and others as martyrs for the faith of science. But in reality, they were theists. They believed in God. To the end, they believed, even though they challenged the view that the earth was the center of the universe, that the sun revolved around the earth, and they challenged that. Yet, they believed that the universe revealed God's power and his glory. And so um, Copernicus, who talked about the circular uh, rotation of the planets, and then Kepler, who proved that they were elliptical orbits, had deep faith in God. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton, little known fact, he actually wrote Bible commentaries. He wrote more about theology than he wrote about science, and yet we don't see that, and you won't hear about that in any of your science books or hear about in your classrooms because it's kind of embarrassing to scientists that one of their greatest who uh, developed, you know, the theory of gravity, talked about mechanics and the motions of all the planets, and in fact, after Newton. Um, with his uh, development of calculus, he was able to show everything in the universe as a curve on a graph. And so he was able to do that. And after him, that's when scientists began to say, well, who needs God then? If God wound up the universe right from the beginning and set it loose, maybe he's a just a absentee God. Maybe he's a watchmaker God and he created it and then he took a trot off to the gamma quadrant. He just took off somewhere. And so that's called deism. And it's a view of a non-personal God who doesn't get involved with his universe. Kind of the God that maybe Einstein believed in when he said that God does not play dice with the universe. He was more of a deist. Now there might be one out there, but we can't really know him. Well, if you look at um, Pascal or Descartes, Descartes had the idea of what was called um, just radical skepticism. I can't believe in anything. Maybe there's some of you here today or kind of that way. I don't trust anything. You know, it's like, especially when I listen to, you know, the political ads. I just, how do you know when a politician's lying? When their mouth is moving. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's just, you know, who do I know? How can I believe? So Descartes came to this one dictum, this thing saying, I can't trust anything. Maybe I'm just, you know, a brain on a bench and ex- existence doesn't even exist. And he came to this conclusion. I think, therefore I am. And that was his basis for his proof for the existence of God. Descartes brilliant philosopher was trying to prove the existence of God. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, uh, he came to this conclusion that inside of everyone is a God-shaped hole or a vacuum. And until that's filled, you just don't know your purpose. We say that here at Discovery Church. You know, seek truth, find purpose. Seek truth, that hole inside of you can be filled with a presence that will help you to understand your maker and how you were made and where you fit into the universe. 
Well, let's think about science and creation for a bit. Because, you know, you probably grew up with it. You know, if you ever watched Bill, Bill, Bill Nye, Bill Nye, the science guy. You ever watched any of that? You, you probably, you know, he just assumes evolution in every show. So every kid has grown up with it. And yeah, it's like everything, you know, evolved just like Darwin said. And um, there's no challenges there. Well, there was a time when science, scientists believed that the universe was eternal. And it didn't really have a start. And so discoveries like the idea, you know, you ever heard of the Hubble telescope? Well, that guy, Hubble, realized that the universe is expanding. And, and the galaxies even are hurtling through space at incredible speeds. They're just moving through space. And he was able to say that they came from a certain spot. And then when they looked at microwaves out in space, there's this faint microwave background, microwave radiation. And that kind of shows that there was at some point. Okay, you couldn't actually stick a potato out there and watch it cook in that microwave energy. It's so infinitesimally small. But what does it point to? It points to an activity of incredible power from which, boom, Everything expanded into space. So we see this act of creation from a singularity, a marble-sized entity, something so tiny and small, it just went, and it's still going now, and it's still hurtling through space. So we see that the universe had a beginning. We see that um, the Bible when it says, in the beginning, God, is answering the question, who, not how. In the beginning, God. Now think about that. That actually is helpful. And you say, well, why is that? Well, then you kind of know where that marble-sized singularity came from. There needs to be something from a philosophical point of view, and it's like, this is way too early for this. This is like <laughs> Sunday morning. But if you think about it, even if there was a little bit of Higgs bosons, okay? There was a small, very dense, very hot singularity. You got to ask the question, where'd that come from? I had a student ask me, did God have gas? Okay, that's rude. (laughs) But even if it wasn't gases that ignited, that were incredibly dense, where did they come from? Well, they have to come from non-matter, non-entity, something called spirit, which is God. He's not made of matter. He doesn't have a body. I ain't got no body. He ain't got no body. He is spirit. But what does this tell us about him? He's incredibly powerful. That he could set a big bang in motion. And looking back, we can see evidence. But the Bible doesn't tell how he did it. Scientific discovery is discovering some of those kind of details. And not only that, 
I've been doing a lot of reading this winter, read three books on creation and science, and this is kind of where they're uh, leading. Basically, what they're saying is that science gives us evidence of how God has worked and shows us, shows us that our universe is so incredibly balanced so that stars actually don't just blow out and they're stable enough to exist. You can think of lots of different possibilities and physicists have done this about universes that would collapse instantaneously. We've got a life-supporting universe. How do you know that? Because you're here. It's called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle is this. The fact that we are here, now think about this. I know it's early. The fact that we are here means we live in a universe that sustains life. It had hydrogen. That's a good thing. And oxygen that make water. That's a good thing. Not every planet has it. We're real lucky. Of course, we couldn't complain about it because we wouldn't be here if we didn't have it. Well, what about Darwin? Well, Darwin has actually fallen on hard times. It's interesting because in your science books, they don't tell you that basically even scientists don't believe in Darwin anymore. Um, No, I, I believe Darwin existed. I just don't put my faith in him. But Darwin has fallen on hard times. So they have what's called neo darwinists new Darwinists, and those evolutionists try to look at the ideas like, okay, so how could life have happened? If we were just this cold or hot stone in space and a primordial soup kind of of all kinds of chemicals was sitting there, maybe, maybe it came together. Well, there's some arguments against that. Well, first of all, Miller in 1953 did an experiment. He took a bunch of the gases that he thought existed on that rock in space, third from the sun, and he, and he sent electricity through those in a perfectly pressurized and heated environment. He zapped it with electricity. And lo and behold, he got complicated molecules. The building blocks of DNA. He was able to come up with two of the four chemicals of DNA. It's like, wow, that's pretty incredible. Until scientists said, yeah, the gases you put that thing through is nothing like the earth was. But they still have it in science books. The Miller experiment is still there. It didn't happen. If you take the actual chemicals and the actual gases and you put electricity through them, you get formaldehyde and cyanide. Okay, don't drink that Kool-Aid. Please, do not drink that Kool-Aid. And the other problem is something called irreducible complexity. Kind of like my message this morning. (laughs) There was a biologist and he started getting really frustrated He was a molecular biologist who was working on what kills DNA. And this is what he began to discover. He began to discover that the idea that gradual changes brought about DNA or a cell just didn't make sense. 
Let me, let me tell you why. The reason it doesn't make sense is that's a cell. Do you see how complicated that is? It's got these tiny little organelles in it. Mitochondria, the endoplasmic reticulum. It's got vacuoles that move things around the cell. All of that nanotechnology cannot exist on its own. It couldn't gradually show up. It couldn't gradually show up. Irreducible complexity says this. If you were to take a mouse trap, and you know the spring? You take the spring off and say, is it still a mouse trap? No, it's not. Those pieces don't mean anything. They don't catch mice. Well, maybe a mouse could walk along and impale itself on a piece of a mouse trap. But really, it's a small machine, but it needs all the parts to work. The same thing with a cell. These things don't gradually appear. And in fact, when you look at the fossil history, you see this thing called the Cambrian period where multiple, multiple, multiple organisms all show up in the exact same strata, all together, all fully developed. How does that happen if it's supposed to be gradual? Well, there's big, big problems. And then DNA. DNA is the most incredible thing. If you were to take one of the things inside of one of the nuclei of your cells, it's six feet long. You've heard of the Human Genome Project, right? That tells you all about yourself. You ever done like, what's it called? 23andMe? Yeah. Where you can send in your DNA and you can figure out all this stuff. That is a blueprint, a code to your whole organic makeup. Philosophers, scientists look at that now and they say to yourself, that's a code. If you work with code and you write code, you know how hard that is. How much intelligence goes into that. And we're going to say that that six-foot code that tells you who you are is by random chance. There was no intelligence there. I can show you a picture of Stonehenge, a bunch of rocks standing in a field. Everyone looks at it and says, isn't that amazing how these rocks evolved out of the ground? No, they don't. They say there must have been like a really scientific people who set up these rocks in a field. And it was kind of an astronomic kind of tower for looking at the universe. It's like, what? They're like stones standing in a field. Aren't you much more complicated than that? Isn't that cell way more complex than Stonehenge rocks standing in a field? Well, before I lose you completely. I used to uh, run Bible clubs at different high schools. And the weirdest thing that I began to notice after a time is the only one who ever wanted to sponsor me, the only high school teacher I could find who would want to sponsor me always turned out to be the math teacher. There was one school, I went and talked to the principal and she said, oh, you need to go find Bible Bill. Uh, Bible Bill? And was because, well, yeah, because like, he's like the Christian. And I was like, oh, I went and he's the math teacher. And I asked him, Bill, why is it, you know, none of the other teachers here are Christians and you're a Christian. And he said, it just adds up. 
Yeah, I had the same reaction. It's like, yeah. But when I was going through a science program, I found that some of my teachers were Christians. I asked them, how do, how, do you, how do you make sense of all this? And they said, well, the arguments are pretty clear. The cosmos is here. It needed a cause. There's order and design in it. So there must be some kind of intelligence. Not only that, we have an intuitive sense. Almost every culture over time had an intuitive sense that there is a God. So if you take these things together, plus the fact that most of us can tell something between right and wrong. At least we can tell there's something wrong with people. There must be a kind of a sense of justice inside of us. Taking all these arguments together, there must be an infinite moral lawgiver somewhere in the universe. It just adds up. Another way to look at this whole thing is maybe not from a scientific point of view, but from a legal point of view. In a court, a court of law, not a tennis court, but in in court, they take witnesses, they put them on the stand to give evidence about a situation. The Bible calls Christians witnesses. Witnesses. We're on the witness stand. Many, many of you here realize these things. That there really was a virgin birth. There was a Jesus. He lived a life and did great miracles. We have his teaching still today from 2,000 years ago. It is the highest level of moral principles known on earth. And not only that, he claimed that he was the son of the living God. And he proved that claim. And there are witnesses to prove it. This would stand up in court that he rose three days after he was executed. And he showed himself to over 500 witnesses. And the other evidence that you could give is this. Many of you here today could say, I didn't just hear about him, but I meet with him daily. You see, I don't need science to prove God to me now because I've met him. I had an encounter, and that encounter changed my life. He filled a hole inside of me. He, he met me at a point of loneliness, and I had a friend and someone to walk through life with. And he is with me now. And so many of the people here today have that same experience. The philosopher Pascal had this idea. If you believe in God, and it turns out that he doesn't exist, you haven't lost much. Really, you haven't lost anything. But if you don't believe in God, and he does exist, you've lost everything. You've lost everything. In a moment, we're going to take a time to pray. But I want to encourage you to take a flying leap. <laughs> take a flying leap. When my kids were young, they would go up the stairs in our house. And I would stand at the bottom of the stairs. And they would just hurdle themselves through the air. And I would catch them on my shoulder. They could take that jump because they trusted that I was going to catch them. 
I can't deal in just 20, 25 minutes here with every concern you have about science and faith. And even then, after everyone has answered every question you ever had, it's still going to bring you to the edge of the stage here. Eventually, you're going to have to jump. Eventually, you're going to have to take that step. And so I want to encourage you to do that today. Like I said, I probably haven't answered all of your questions, but if you haven't made that decision yet, or if you've been kind of going back and forth, you've been vacillating, waffling on your commitment to Christ, can I just encourage you? Take a flying leap to commit yourself completely to someone who is committing himself completely to you. He'll catch you. And you'll have that experience that I know and many people know here is that he is very real and he truly loves you. There are so many questions that you may have about faith in Jesus. Can I encourage you to explore those questions for yourself? God is not afraid of your questions. Rather, he welcomes them. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and be sure to never miss an episode. If you find these talks beneficial, would you rate and review them? That would help others get connected to these kinds of talks. Have a great day. We can't wait to hang with you again next week.